Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. Today, I'm going to be talking about a term that is used a lot, but is also disagreed about a lot. The Anthropocene. I want to ask what it means, when it started, what it says about us, but also why it might be the wrong word for what we want to talk about. Past, Present, Future is brought to you in partnership with London Review of Books, where you can read many essays on the themes that I'm talking about today, including environmentalism and climate change. To subscribe and to get access to the LRB's peerless archive, just go to lrb.me slash ppf and get a special rate. That's lrb.me slash ppf. I've always thought of the term the Anthropocene as pretty off-putting. I don't use it very often, partly because it sounds to me like academic jargon. And in many ways, it is a very academic term. And until a few years ago, you wouldn't hear people talking about the Anthropocene outside of a university seminar room. But in the last few years, it's become, I don't want to say it's become part of everyday speech. It definitely hasn't. But it's become much more widely used. And you see the phrase the Anthropocene cropping up in lots of different places, in, in journalism, in newspaper reports, in discussions about climate change and environmentalism. It's used by artists. It's there in works of fiction. So it's definitely crossed out of its academic origins. That is also part of the problem with it, where it originated, which is in geology, and the people with whom it originated feel that it's being used much too loosely and too promiscuously. So first of all, I just want to try and separate out that technical sense of it from the more general way in which it's come to be used, which is what I'm going to be focused on here. But as a geological term, the Anthropocene was proposed as a way of marking a new geological epoch. And what it means in that sense is simply that it may be, and it's by no means agreed or confirmed, But it may be that we are now living in an era where the familiar, the conventional markers of geological epochs, rocks, stratification, sedimentation, the fossils that you find, we can now see in our planet, we can now see in the world that we live in, those markers being shaped by human activity. So the Anthropocene is the period in which conventional geological markers show the recognisable signs of human activity shaping our world. Ecosystems, climate, biodiversity. But in that more formal sense, it does require the markers to be the same as the markers that would allow us to recognise the shift from the Ice Age to the era that we have ostensibly now been living in for 
nearly 12,000 years, which is known as the Holocene, the, the warm period, the post-Ice Age period. When it's used more broadly, more generally, I think it's taken to mean just that we now live in a world where not necessarily the rocks or the fossils show signs of us, but simply the natural world bears our marks all over it, that we have impacted our world, our habitat, in a way that is recognisably something that can only be explained by human activity. And in that more general sense, I think it's assumed that in this period, the marks that we have left on the world, the natural world, reveal something about us. This is the Anthropocene. We as a species, the human species, have shaped our world in a way that allows us to know something about ourselves. And to be honest, it's not good. What we can read of ourselves from the marks that we leave in the oceans, in the soil, in the atmosphere, the plastic, the soil erosion, the carbon, the loss of biodiversity, the exploitation and possible non-sustainability of certain basic resources, it doesn't reflect well on us. I don't think geologists are making those kind of value judgments. And certainly if it's going to be a marker of a geological epoch, it's not a morality tale. But in its wider usage, it is a kind of morality tale. Now, there are some things that the two ways of using this term definitely have in common. One is both of them do focus on climate, not exclusively, but climate and climate change is definitely one of the markers. So the move from the Ice Age, the Great Ice Age, to the, the warmer period, the Holocene, was marked by a significant shift in climate. And if we are now living through another equivalent shift because of human activity, something that's happened relatively recently, but also potentially extremely rapidly, that would be equivalent to the kinds of things that signal the move from one geological epoch to another. At the same time, in that more general usage, climate change is clearly the prime example of the ways in which humanity is leaving its mark on the natural world, on ecosystems, in ways that are potentially destructive, including potentially very destructive for us. Another thing that the, the two ways of talking about the Anthropocene have in common is there isn't really any agreement about where it starts, neither technically more, nor more informally. On the whole, there's probably not a consensus, but a general view that one possible start date for this era in which human activity marks indelibly the natural world is the Industrial Revolution. So it may be that this epoch is just a few hundred years old. Some people want to date it with the invention of the steam engine in the late 18th century. Maybe it's that story. From steam to industrialization, from industrialization to the depredation of the natural order. Some accounts want to make it even more recent than that. For some people, it only really becomes a a global phenomenon, a planetary event in the 20th century. It can be associated with what's come to be known as the Great Acceleration, which is the second half of the 20th century. What you see are those processes that originate in the Industrial Revolution, mass production, industrialization, leading to other things like mass transportation, telecommunications, 
the use, the enormous use of energy resources and other natural resources, things like water. But it's with the great acceleration that those trends suddenly become global. They don't just happen in certain parts of the world, the privileged parts. They start to spread everywhere. So these markers become much more universal. That is probably a story of the last 70 years. And of course, it does coincide with some of the ways of shaping the arc of climate change. It's both post-industrial, but also it's massively accelerated recently. It can also be identified with the dawn of the nuclear age for a couple of reasons. In that more technical sense, the use of atomic weaponry in 1945 has left an indelible mark. The evidence of the bombs, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, will still be there in many, many thousands of years. And that is one of the features of both nuclear energy and nuclear weaponry. It can leave its mark way beyond any historical time frame that we might be able to contemplate. But also, in the more general use of the term, the Anthropocene, the nuclear age also marks the point where human beings acquired the capacity not just to shape the natural world, not just necessarily to impact it for the worse, for it and for us, possibly to destroy it. That is, once we have nuclear weapons, we could do something to this planet that is comparable to those huge geological shifts much, much earlier in its history, well before we were here. Were there to be a nuclear conflagration, it could well be the equivalent of a massive meteorite strike, the kind of thing that wiped out the dinosaurs. But now we could do that. We've suddenly entered a world where human beings could be the equivalent of a meteorite strike. And that seems to mark a really decisive shift. To borrow that line from Oppenheimer, we had then become the destroyer of worlds. But there are also people who want to argue, and this is more in the, the more academic use of the term, that actually the Anthropocene, if we're going to be serious about it, goes all the way back. The Holocene, the warm period, is also the period when the Earth became hospitable for humans. So we have massively proliferated over the last 12,000 years, going back to what's usually called the agricultural revolution, the point where we shifted from being hunter-gatherers to being creatures who settled in one place in order to extract food from the land. And by settling in one place, by starting this thing called farming, we also acquired various other habits, including polluting the land around us, but also building communities that required certain kinds of institutional structures. We invented things like governments and indeed certain kinds of conflict and war. All of this came together more than 10,000 years ago. And from the very beginning of that story, we started to leave our mark. When we were hunter-gatherers, we didn't leave our mark in that way. But when we were settled in one place, you can see us, you can see the evidence of us, and you can see it in stratification, in sedimentation, in what we leave behind. But if you take that account of where this story starts, then I think there is a, a real difference between the general use of the term Anthropocene and the more technical use. Because then the Anthropocene becomes the new name for the Holocene. The idea is that human impact coincides with that point where the shift in climate allowed human beings to flourish. And it's a 12,000-year story. But that doesn't seem to sit with 
the more general use of the term, which implies that we are doing something now to our world, which, if we carry on like this, will make it less friendly for us. The Holocene is the human-friendly period. We became the dominant species because the climate allowed it. In the Ice Age, it was much, much harder for humans to thrive. But now we are so dominant that we may be doing something to the natural world which will make it harder for us to thrive in the future. And that is a shift. So that has to be a shift within the Holocene story. And it must be much, much more recent. So I don't think the general use of the term makes sense if we take the story all the way back 12,000 years. Technically, I think it probably does make sense, but not in the way I'm going to be talking about it here. It goes without saying. I'm not a geologist. What I'm interested in is that idea that has become more and more pervasive, that by talking about the Anthropocene, what we are doing is identifying something very recent. Even if it's only a couple of hundred years, that's still recent. If it's 50 years or 70 years, that's within a human lifetime. So something that is comparable to a shift in geological epoch, it's got that much significance, but it's much, much more recent. And it reveals something about who we are, that by naming it after us, by calling it after the human species, this very sudden, very recent shift, we are calling ourselves out as the agents of change. And it's important to do that so that we recognise, ultimately, who is responsible for this. So if you take it in that sense, what, what do people think is revealed about the human species by the markers that we leave around us, by the destruction of biodiversity, by the fact that the carbon in the atmosphere is making this planet considerably and soon maybe rapidly hotter, by the plastics in the oceans, by the soil erosion, by the fact that this planet is now lit up all the time. Even a hundred years ago, if you looked at this planet from outer space at night, the bits of it that were in dark would be dark. Now the land masses are often lit all the time. What does it say about us that this is now the planet that we're living on? And like I say, I think the way people talk about the Anthropocene implies that what it says about us is not good. It seems to suggest that as a species, we are insatiable, that we are greedy, we are unable to control our consumptive appetites. We are using stuff up. We are using up the water. We are heating the planet because we can't stop producing things and indeed consuming things. There is something insatiable about us or worse. So the philosopher John Gray has said that what we need to recognize about humanity, that as well as being homo sapiens, we are the intelligent creatures. We are the ones that are capable of doing remarkable things with our brains. We are also, as he puts it, homo rapiens. We are the rapacious creatures. We are the people who rape the planet. And that's who we are. And if we forget that, we will be completely oblivious to our fate. And that's the other thing that this era seems to suggest about the kind of species that we are, which is that we are relatively oblivious. We are not good at spotting what we are doing to the environment which has been so friendly to us and on which we depend. We heat it either without noticing it or noticing it 
but being comfortably able to ignore it for the sake of much shorter term gains and goals and the things that we think we value because they give us more immediate gratification. We are that species. Insatiable, maybe even rapacious, relatively oblivious, and then also in this sense of the Anthropocene, though I think not in the more technical sense, self-destructive. We are the species that because of our insatiability and because of our obliviousness, may be going to destroy the thing that has to this point allowed us to thrive and flourish, which is a planet of a certain kind of temperature with certain natural resources which we can use and exploit, but which we cannot use and exploit if we simply overuse them. And so that we may end up the losers from the epoch that is named after us. So if the Anthropocene turns out to be very, very bad for humanity, there is at least something ironic about the era that is named after us and is characterised by us, destroying us. That would imply we are a self-destructive species. I'm not saying everyone who uses the term means it in that way, and there are lots of different variations within those kinds of themes, but it is a dominant way of understanding this new era we live in when that term is being used. So what I want to suggest is that there are problems and puzzles with thinking in that way, particularly in characterising the era that we're living in as reflecting who we are like that. And some of these points are made by critics of the term, the Anthropocene. But I'm going to go on and suggest that we probably need a different name for it, and I'm going to offer one. Let's see how it goes. One of the problems with that way of characterising us as a species revealing ourselves through this activity that leaves these kinds of markers is that it definitely isn't all of us. And this point is often made that the Anthropocene implies that this is a human-wide phenomenon. We're all part of it. We're all up to it. But we're not. Almost all of what's being talked about here, the damage that is being done, or the exploitation, the rapaciousness, the insatiability, comes from certain parts of the world, north rather than south, or west, or developed, industrialised rather than developing. There are still many, many human beings, billions of human beings, who live much closer to nature than people do in the developed world, and are much more vulnerable to nature and to natural phenomena, including vulnerable to the changes that those human beings who are changing the planet are leaving in their wake. Again, climate change is the paradigmatic case here. The people who will suffer first and worst from a warming planet are not, on the whole, the people who are causing it. Most of it is being caused by a relatively small number, population-wise, of nations, powerful nations, nations that industrialised early, now, nations that industrialised relatively recently, like China and maybe even increasingly India. But there are many parts of the world, Africa, other parts of Asia, where people are much more dependent on a pre-existing natural order, people who are living something closer to a subsistence existence, people who are closer to the land, people who are literally living in places that will flood sooner with fewer and fewer means of escape. And to say that because these people are human and because this is a human-wide phenomenon, we're all in it together, seems grotesque, almost absurd. 
how can this be a species-wide event? Why would we characterize it, it was us as a species, when it wasn't us as a species? It was some of us, not all of us. But then when you go down that route, it's some of us, not all of us. First of all, the name, the Anthropocene, starts to sound a bit off. But it's hard to think what the alternative name would be. Are we going to name it after the places, the societies that are primarily responsible for it? And I think there's also a danger if what we think is being revealed here is something about who we are as humans, selfish, rapacious, oblivious, self-destructive. Are we saying that what's happened is that in the history of the species, it's the selfish, rapacious, self-destructive ones who have acquired the ability to dominate the planet? To me, that sounds a bit like a morality tale, and you do hear it. You do hear the idea that what is revealed here is the bad people are in charge, the bad societies, the bad political systems, the bad economic systems are the ones that have reached the top, as though history was a kind of vast sorting hat in which the ability to impact the planet is given to the people who will do the most damage with that ability. And I just don't think that that is true. I am more comfortable with a species-wide account of who we are, which says that human beings are kind of the same everywhere. We have completely different experiences, and certainly we have completely different stories when it comes to the things that we are lucky enough to be born with, depending on which society we're born in. But the idea that things like greed and selfishness, rapacity, indifference to suffering, belong to certain people and not to others, it's like the inversion of the story that was told in the Victorian era, 150 years ago, where it would be assumed that the people who were running the planet, say the British with their empire, were doing it because they were better than other people, because they had qualities that other societies and other civilizations lacked. And that was itself ridiculous nonsense. The British weren't in charge because the British were better. The British were in charge because the British were lucky. They were lucky in their early adoption of certain technologies, that they had first mover advantages, which they relatively ruthlessly exploited. If it's not the case that this story can be explained by the people who end up on top being better, I equally think it can't be explained by the assumption that the people who ended up on top are worse. It's people. Something else has to explain it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I think there are two kinds of explanations that 
supply an answer for what that something else is. And they are needed also because the other thing that doesn't really make sense here if you're telling the shorter story and not the longer story. So something happened 250 years ago or 100 years ago or 50 years ago that produced this astonishing geological-like impact. If at the same time you're also saying that what is revealed is something about human beings and the kinds of creatures we are, but it's only very, very recent, it doesn't make sense to think that very, very recently we changed our character, that 250 years ago or 100 years ago we suddenly became oblivious and greedy and self-destructive. Because the other thing that history, I think, makes abundantly clear is that we have always had those qualities in us. We have other qualities too. We are capable of extraordinary cooperation, self-sacrifice. We are creatures who understand the meaning of love. But also, throughout our history, we have been capable of oblivious cruelty. It's not as if the Romans couldn't be described in the same terms. But if this era only starts not with the Romans, not even maybe with the Georgians, but with 20th century humans. There is no plausible explanation that says something happened that changed our character in the 20th century. I just don't believe that. I don't believe anyone could make a convincing case on that basis. So something else must have changed. It's not we who changed, but something about our circumstances must have changed. And this is where you get two possible explanations. One is technology. Essentially, our characters didn't change, but our capacity changed. Our ability to exploit the natural world changed dramatically and in the 20th century exponentially because of the invention of technologies from the steam engine through to nuclear power and nuclear weaponry and on now to digital technologies and maybe the coming AI revolution. It's humanity plus technological capacity that does this. And it's what happens when we are joined to that kind of power almost a planetary power, an ability to do extraordinary things, maybe for good or for ill, on a scale that would have been unimaginable even to the Romans. But even then, it doesn't really work. And I think part of the reason it doesn't work is that most human beings don't feel that they have been joined with that power. If we're talking about mass industrial capacity, if we're talking about nuclear power, if we're talking about the ability to create and deploy digital technologies, not just in the developing world, but in the developed world, in the most privileged societies on earth, I still think most human beings, and I would include myself in this, don't feel they have any control over that technology. It's not ours. I don't know how nuclear energy works, but I particularly am very aware I don't really have any say in how it works. Maybe it a very distant remove through democratic politics, but even then I'm not convinced. Digital technology, mass industrial technology, it feels like to call that a species-wide event, humanity plus that technology equals the Anthropocene, takes us back to the problem. It ignores the way in which it's really a tiny fraction of humanity who have acquired that kind of power, that sort of planetary power. We, for the most part, experience it as recipients of it. We may benefit from it, but we don't control it. And you can get into the same kind of morality tale problem if you then want to say, well, the people who do control it, they are the bad ones. And I know it's true. 
that maybe there are slightly more psychopaths and narcissists among politicians and CEOs than in the general population. But I refuse to believe that the people who create and work with this technology are just, by definition, bad, and the rest of us aren't. Some of them maybe, but some of us maybe too. And on the whole, I think, most of the people who are involved in these processes, running the organisations that do have this kind of power, are much like the rest of us. But then it's really complicated to say what has changed here, because the thing that I think it's important to avoid is to blame the technology. So I don't think you can blame all of us, because it's not true. And I don't think it makes sense to blame some of us as though there is a subset of humanity Homo rapiens, the psychopaths and narcissists who get sorted into positions of power. But it also is not good for anyone to say it wasn't our fault, it was the technology's fault, because that's a way of abdicating responsibility. I don't think it should be called the techno scene, not least because that really would be a terrible term. It sounds like a German dance movement. But techno scene is just a complete abdication of human responsibility. And that would be a very, very bad idea. It's not all of us, it's not some of us. It's not really the technology either. The other explanation is that what changed is humanity faced insuperable, and again, I apologize for using an academic, slightly jargony term, insuperable collective action problems. That is, it's not that we're bad people. We're just people and people want what they want. You know, we want to survive and ideally we want to flourish. We want security. We want comfort where we can get it. But when we do that to scale, to a global scale, when we all start doing it, when human beings around the planet start wanting the same kind of security, the same kind of comfort, relative ease of transportation or to eat meat or whatever it is, good education and prospects for their children, all of that, perfectly reasonable things to want, maybe apart from eating meat, perfectly reasonable things to want. But when we do it to scale, we can't coordinate the way in which we do it, and we end up causing terrible destruction. One version of this is what's come to be known as the tragedy of the commons, the idea that when human beings share a resource, they can really struggle to coordinate their use of that resource in a way that doesn't, in the end, damage everyone. And maybe that's who we are. We are the species that can't ultimately solve our collective action problems, and the Anthropocene is the evidence of that. But the problem I have with that account is that the Anthropocene is also evidence of the fact that we can solve our collective action problems because we wouldn't be able to do this to this scale with this range of impacts if we weren't capable of coordinating and pooling our resources. That's what has made this possible. It's not just technology. It's not just the steam engine. It's not just industrialization that has done this. It is the fact that we worked out ways to deploy that technology to scale our collective activities only relatively recently and in a global sense only very recently so that the markers of the Anthropocene can now be seen everywhere. They can only be seen everywhere because we are the collective action solving species. There may be some collective action challenges that we still struggle with but to say that what the Anthropocene reveals about us is that we can't solve our problems to scale belies the fact that it also reveals about us that it is operating to scale that has produced these effects. And that seems to me one way 
of thinking about where the answer to these puzzles might lie. And that's what I want to suggest here, that the mistake is to try and characterize this epoch in species terms by making it about us as human beings. It's not all of us. It's not some of us. It's not none of us. So what is it? I think it's a version of us. It is the version of us that worked out how to solve those collective action problems and build economic and political structures that have become entrenched all over the world. And the name I'm going to give them is states and corporations. Decision-making mechanisms for pooling resources and deploying those resources to scale in vast investment projects, industrial projects, welfare projects, building huge healthcare systems and education systems, all the things that we have been doing relatively recently to give ourselves the things that we want, not because we're selfish and careless and oblivious, but because we're human. But it's only that version of us that has made this possible. And it is the marks of that version of us that characterise the Anthropocene, that is, this recent phenomenon, the one that is at most a couple of centuries old. It's the spread of that way of organising our lives, modern, political and corporate existence. That is the thing that is revealed by these markers, because that's the thing that we couldn't do before. We hadn't worked out how to do it, even the Romans hadn't worked out to do it. But we have invented a kind of political or economic technology, which is replicable. You can do it in different places around the world. Corporate life and modern political life turns out to be something you can do in all sorts of different societies and places with relatively similar effects. Great accelerations in often human prosperity, longevity, but also these destructive consequences for the natural world and potentially ultimately for the human world too. I am aware on this podcast, people tell me that I have obsessions and that I'm particularly preoccupied with two people. One is Donald Trump, I'm not going to talk about him. The other one is the 17th century English philosopher Thomas Hobbes. So I'm going to talk about him very briefly because I think he gives us the name for this. So Hobbes's term for this way of organising human life that we build, that has this capacity to do things to scale in a way that is durable and reliable and good for human beings, but also potentially bad for human beings, is the Leviathan. Big modern states and big modern corporate or business enterprises are Leviathans. They are made up by human beings, they are invented by human beings, but they have their own drives, their own imperatives. They do things to a scale that would be unimaginable to any earlier human societies, even including the Romans. They are not themselves human, and it's their markers that we see across the planet. It is states and corporations that are driving the kinds of changes that could be characterised as a new geological epoch. So I think it should be called the Leviocene and not the Anthropocene. And I want to just try and explain why, what difference that would make. I'm aware it might not make any difference. It's just a word, and it's just a word that I've invented. But it seems to me to put the emphasis in a different place. I want to give three reasons why I think it's a better term. The first is that something that is very uncomfortable for me anyway about the idea of the Anthropocene is the implication that we broke it, so we need to fix it. 
In other words, humanity did this. So humanity has to recognize its failings and reform them. And one way that can play out is the fairly commonplace idea these days in relation to things like climate change, that what we need to see is a change in human behavior. If we are going to rescue ourselves, given what we have discovered about the kind of people that we have become, maybe not all of us, but certainly some of us, is a change in human behavior, maybe not a change in human nature, but certainly a change in the kinds of ways that we impact the world through our human characteristics and habits. We've got to become better people to save ourselves, less selfish people. And I just think it's unrealistic. I think it's unrealistic because we are natural creatures and we have certain characteristics that we've always had, good and bad. Sometimes they come out really well, sometimes they come out really badly. But the one thing that is certainly hard to do is to change who we are. Human behavior is malleable in various ways, but the characteristics that make us human, if that's what the Anthropocene implies, we have revealed characteristics of ourselves that are self-destructive, so we've got to do something about that. I think it sets the bar too high. I think it's actually depressing if the only way we can save ourselves is to become different people, because I don't think it's going to happen. But if you call it the Leviathan and you say the markers that we see are not the markers of us as a species, but the version of us that we have created over the past few hundred years, and then we have proliferated around the earth in the past 70 years, these modern forms of scaled up collective decision-making and both security and exploitation machines, the things that drive prosperity and also drive enormous risk. Those things, they are a version of us. We built them to serve our purposes and to reflect the things that we want and are seeking. So we are completely implicated in the creation of the Leviathans. They're not, it's not the steam engine. It's not nuclear fission. It's a version of us, but it is a specific version of us. And crucially, it is human made. It is artificial. So we are not artificial we are natural creatures, and nature leaves its mark on us in a way that makes us, relatively speaking, since we've been around for hundreds of thousands of years, quite hard to change, certainly quite hard to change over, say, a 50 or a 70-year time frame. And it may be even less that we've got to rescue ourselves from the consequences of the Anthropocene. But we can change these things that we built because we built them. If the problem is the political and corporate entities over which we may have lost a certain amount of control and they have become the, the mechanisms for the proliferation of this kind of behavior. We can't, I don't think, re-engineer ourselves, but we can re-engineer them. And if we re-engineer them, we may be able to leave a different mark on the planet. It's a more hopeful outlook if we think it's a specific version of us, an artificial version of us, that is doing this. So I don't think we should say of the planet, we broke it, so we should fix it. I think that's too hard. I think we should say of these things that we made, we made them so we can remake them. The second thing to be said for it is if the choice here is Anthropocene, Leviathine, all hideous words, Technocene. The Technocene doesn't have enough human in it. It's a way of saying it wasn't us, it was the technology, which people do say. I don't think it's a good line of thought. 
The Anthropocene has too much human in it, natural human, human qualities, human attributes. And it doesn't really work, I think, because it's not all of us. And I don't think it's a good idea to say that it's some of us who have these species-wide characteristics. So Technocene says it's none of us. Anthropocene can't say which of us. Leviocene says it's a version of us. So it's not a way of abdicating responsibility onto the technology, because this is technology made of human beings, states and corporations. The machines are made up of moving parts that are themselves human. It is us. We, we built them and they are built out of us. We can't say it's nothing to do with us. We can't say this technology has a mind of its own because we supply it with a mind. But at the same time, it's not saying it's something about us as a species. It's a version of us. It falls between something that has too much of a universal claim of what the human is to characterize this phenomenon and something that allows human beings off the hook. I don't think calling it the Leviathan allows human beings off the hook. I think it focuses us on the things that need to change, the way we build our political and economic world. It's that that we can read off the planet. And finally, I want to go back to something that we talked about on this podcast a couple of months ago, a conversation that I had with the historian of science, Meehan Christ, about Thomas Malthus, the late 18th, early 19th century political economist, and the idea that's named after him now, Malthusianism. The Malthusian perspective says that, and this is slightly more than 200 years ago from that perspective, Yes, we may sometimes leave our mark on the natural world, but in the end, the natural world will leave its mark on us. That is, we will, because we are, as I think Malthus believed, for, in his case, religious rather than scientific reasons, we are potentially a, a selfish and oblivious and self-destructive species. We have natural drives that may not, in the end, be good for our virtue, including towards sex and, and procreation. We may proliferate. We live in a warm, comfortable climate relative to the Ice Age, which allows for human proliferation when the conditions are right. But when we do that, we will quite quickly exceed the capacity of the natural world to sustain us. The friendly environment will become unfriendly very, very quickly. And that is because food production cannot keep up with population growth. That was his basic argument. Population growth is exponential. Food production is linear, so quite quickly there will be too many people to feed. And then the natural world will pull us back. It will pull us back within its limits. People will starve. There will be, as Malthus said, various forms of human misery quickly. And this process will be cyclical. We can never ultimately escape. I don't think Malthus, writing when he did, would recognise these terms of the Anthropocene that I've been talking about here, because he would say that we never get there. We never get to the point where our mark on the planet outweighs the planet's mark on us, the natural world's mark on us, because that will be seen everywhere in the misery, in the starvation that comes when we, as we will do, because of the kinds of creatures we are, when we exceed our limits. And Malthus was wrong. We talk about the Anthropocene because we worked out how to exceed our limits. Almost at exactly the time he was writing, the Industrial Revolution and then spreading around the world, human beings discovered ways to escape the Malthusian trap, not simply because they invented technologies that allowed them to escape, but because they also invented political and economic systems, or technologies, that's another word for it, that allowed them to deploy those technologies to scale, to produce food, 
to invest, to secure people in particular kinds of environments, to build the infrastructure, to build the education systems, to build the healthcare systems that keep people safe and alive and fed. All of it goes together. It's a package of social, economic and technological, for want of a better word, progress that allows the limits that Malthus thought were natural and unavoidable to be transcended. But in doing that, in escaping the Malthusian trap, we have created the world that could now be called the Anthropocene world, in which those systems that we built are leaving their markers everywhere, in species destruction, in resource extraction and depletion, in carbon emission, in a warming world, and in potentially a world where the Malthusian story is going to come back to us. Because if the planet gets too hot for us to live the kinds of lives that we have grown used to living in the post-Malthusian world, nature will reassert its limits on us because we've changed it. This is the thing that would be unimaginable to Malthus, who would have thought it was only acts of God that could achieve this kind of change. We've changed it through the way that we have structured human life, not because of the creatures we are, but because of the way that we have structured our lives. But we've changed it in such a way that we may have now created a world, an environment that isn't just bad for all the species that are wiped out and isn't potentially destabilizing nature. And I don't know what nature thinks about that, but it's potentially really bad for us and will lead to misery. The worst case scenarios for climate change, which may be coming relatively soon, could lead to Malthusian style misery, conflict, starvation mass movements of people in a planet that becomes increasingly inhospitable to us. We've turned the human-friendly planet into the human-infriendly planet. But we've done it through the Leviathans. It's the Leviathans that did it. And when I say that, I don't mean, therefore, we're not to blame because we built them and we run them and we deploy them and we often leave them unreformed and we let them carry on their merry way. Corporations that seek out profit and to maximise shareholder value at the cost of sustainability. Corporations that ignore natural capital for the sake of other ways of valuing what it is they do. States that prioritise their security understood in narrow militaristic or even paranoid terms because that's the kind of creatures they are. Leviathans are often paranoid. They often are blinkered. They have huge blind spots. They are these kinds of artificial machines that we built to keep us safe, and they do keep us safe, but they also mark the world in all of their activities. And it could be that those creatures are creating a new Malthusian trap because the way that they use up natural resources in order to keep themselves alive is ultimately self-defeating. This is Malthus back to haunt us. So in the age of the Leviathan, what is the way out of the second Malthusian trap? Well, how did we get out of the first Malthusian trap? It was because we solved some of our coordination problems. We worked out ways to do this to scale, such that it isn't the tragedy of the commons, such that it isn't the case that human beings doing what they do naturally, procreating, trying to lead more prosperous lives, uses up the resources on which those lives depend. We solved that coordination problem to scale, so maybe we need to do it again. And I think that is definitely possible. But if we need to do it again, we have to recognise that the coordination now has to be at the level of the Leviathans, at the level of the states and corporations that run our world. They have to be coordinated. And that means, if nothing else, that our focus has to be far, far, far more on international coordination and cooperation and indeed building 
the institutions at the international level that are capable of doing this in the way that we built the institutions at a lower level that were capable of doing it. That's one possibility. It's hard to see how it will happen, but then it was pretty hard for Malthus to see how the Malthusian trap could be escaped. And the fact is, it did happen. And if it happened once, it can happen again. There's no reason for despair. The second possibility is to think that actually the solution to this is broadly technological. We've got leviathans that are behaving in ways, ostensibly, for our security, for our prosperity, that may well destroy the environment on which that security and prosperity depends. But they could be supplemented or enhanced as they enhanced us by new systems or technologies that give them a greater capacity to coordinate what they do. So not the solution through much greater focus on international political cooperation and institution building, but on smart new technologies that work out ways to coordinate for us. The danger, I think, of that approach is that it does take us into the technocene. So then we've gone from Anthropocene to Leviathan to the idea that actually the way out of the Malthusian Leviathan trap is technologies in which there is almost no human input because these are systems that run themselves. And the promise of the AI revolution for some of the people who believe in it is precisely that, that it will help us solve climate change and global coordination problems and all the rest. And if necessary, we'll find us other planets to live on. Because if we put our fate in the hands of technologies that are simply not subject to all of the failings of human nature, which Leviathans are. So Leviathans still depend on human nature to run. It's a version of us, but it is also a version of us. We could abstract it out to the chat GPTs of this world, or their soon-to-be replacements, the smarter versions of them, and they'll do it for us. Then we're in the Technocene, and the good thing about the Anthropocene is that it is human-focused. The good thing about the Leviathan is that it does still make it clear that this is about us, in the technocene, I have no idea whether it's about us or not anymore, because this will be a planet shaped by technology. And then the third possibility, which may have to go along with the other two, is simply to remember that the Leviathans are us. They are a version of us. And they can behave in ways that are inhuman because they are not themselves human. So they are an artificial version of us. And because they're not human, they can do inhuman things. And maybe. They will do inhuman things if the world ends because of a nuclear conflagration. It will be because these state systems, this way of organizing collective decision-making in the end could not stop itself from the ultimate act of self-destruction, self-harm. And if that happens, it'll be very bad for the Leviathans too. No one will come out of it well. But we can also remind ourselves that just as these machines are capable of inhuman behavior, Corporations can do things that I think even the wickedest human beings would probably shy away from. They are also capable of being imbued with our needs, our interests, our wants, our best instincts, including our instinct not to destroy the environment in which we live. I think most human beings in the Anthropocene don't want self-destruction. I think maybe all human beings in the Anthropocene don't want self-destruction. So if we are destroying this habitat on which we depend, there should be a way of reminding the agents of that destruction, the Leviathans, that they are made out of us and we don't want it. 
there should be ways to rehumanize these machines, to democratize them, to make them more answerable to us. If we are drifting into a world where their imperatives are the things that will, in the end, spell harm for them and for us, we need to remember and then to remind them that their imperatives are not the only imperatives. States and corporations rule our world, but their values do not have to be our values. We could change them. We could try to make them more human. If the Leviathine is a period where there is a new artificial version of the Malthusian trap, rather than trying to allow it to morph into the technocene, maybe what we should do is turn it actually into the Anthropocene. That is, find a way to reconnect these artificial versions of what it means to be human with the real experiences, hopes, and fears of the humans who are now alive across the planet through institutional reform, through new ways of collectively organizing our existence internationally, nationally, locally, that give a far greater variety of human beings, ideally all of us, more input into our collective fate. So maybe one way out of the Leviathan is to find the grounds, the conditions for legitimately thinking of it as the Anthropocene. If you've been interested in some of the things I've been talking about today, and I realise some of them are a bit out there, you can read a lot more about this, including what I mean by the Leviathan, in my new book, which I talked to Leah Ippi about a while ago. It's called The Handover, How We Gave Control of Our Lives to Corporations, States and AIs. And it's available now. Do buy it, if you can, from an independent bookstore. We will tweet links at PPF Ideas to some of the things I was talking about today as well, including some of those earlier episodes where we talked about many of these themes. Next week, I am going to be talking about Donald Trump. I can't help it. I'm talking to the historian and essayist Jill Lepore about what's happened to America very recently and what it means for the future. Do please join us for that. My name is David Runciman. And this has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books.